0: I'm delighted you're with us this morning uh, as we continue the sermon series that I've been on for the past several weeks and lessons from the life of the early church. And God has so many things that he wants to teach us as we focus on the early church and what the early church went through. And so today we're going to discuss how to handle persecution. It is inevitable. It will come. We live in an evil world. We're surrounded by evil. And just like the early church faced it, we're going to face it. But I want to focus exactly on how the early church handled persecution, because there's so much to learn. You know, in the early days, and we're talking now really within the first two months or three months after Jesus was crucified and ascended to heaven, the early church received tremendous persecution and suffering. Uh, Christians during the first 100, 200 years were thrown to wild animals. They were crucified. They were tortured. Uh, Uncounted thousands of martyrs went to their death uh, at the hands of tormentors, uh, evildoers. uh, And this applied even to all of the apostles. They all suffered, all met untimely deaths. But far from destroying the church, This persecution really served to purify the church and to affirm the church and to lift it up and to strengthen it. And so after surviving three centuries of violent church, the church itself emerged as the dominant force, really, in the Roman Empire. You know that Constantine accepted Christianity, and Christianity was then no longer tormented and persecuted And it became the single most dominant force in the Roman Empire. Now, in the words of the great church father Eusebius, he said the following, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. And so in modern times in the West, we rarely suffer physical persecution Uh, Satan's attacks have become so much more subtle now, you see. We're not thrown to wild animals. We're not crucified. But instead, we suffer attacks on our ego, uh, attacks on our selfish pride, uh, even the ongoing need for acceptance and status. And we suffer because of that. And all of that has destroyed the very effectiveness of the church. Uh, Without having to kill any of believers, Satan has determined and been successful in in really undermining the modern church, and I use that, the church universal, not any specific church. And so, in fact, letting believers become narcissistic, become self-centered, complacent, indolent, uh, living worldly lives has proven to be more effective in destroying and unplugging the church than those early days of torment and suffering. And so the first opposition to the early church uh, did not take long to arise. It came from the same Jewish leaders that crucified Christ. And you can read this at your leisure in Acts chapter 4, 5, 7, 8, and 12, as those persecutions are recorded. And so the fact that the church would come to persecution would not come as a surprise because the Lord Jesus warned them when he was on the earth. And if you look at John 15, verses 18 to 20, it's on the board. And Jesus said the following, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. There it is the clarion call to Jesus. If they did this to me, what makes you think you would escape? The world hated me. And this, Satan is empowering the world. And so as Satan empowers the world, as Jesus has been hated, so also will we, the church, be hated. And the apostles also taught that as well. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul said the following, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There it is. You live a godly life in Christ Jesus, persecution will come. You're not going to get a parade. You're not going to get a prize. What's going to happen is that the world ultimately will vilify you. You will be repudiated. People who you thought were your friends will have nothing to do with you. Even your own family, you're going to find, in many cases, will repudiate you as you stand for Jesus Christ. Now, those Christians who live godly, Christ-centered lives will inevitably come into conflict with this satanic world. There's no way about it. And so you see this in the early church within about one week of when the Holy Spirit descends on the day of Pentecost and now the, the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit and now you're going to see the impact of the satanic forces coming face-to-face with the church in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. It's on the board. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Let's understand something. This is now within about a one week of Pentecost, and now the church now has 5,000 new members. Can you imagine? That's the power of the Holy Spirit People hearing the empowering word of God. Their hearts are convicted. They're coming to Christ. And remember, we're speaking of Jews. How about that? All right? I don't think this is a bunch of Gentiles. A Gentile community has not yet really come into the church. We are talking now about the Jewish people. And so the the authorities were greatly disturbed. Uh, And they were disturbed for several reasons. First of all... These apostles were preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the very guy that they crucified two months before, three months before. And now they're preaching that he rose from the dead. This was convicting in a a great way and disturbing also. Uh, And what also disturbed them is that these men who had been with Jesus had no rabbinic training. No rabbinic training. Guess what? They had never gone to seminary. Let me ask you something. Do you think the Holy Spirit decided, I'm going to only descend on those who have been in seminary 101? I mean, think about it. And today in the modern church, we often come to that conclusion. And we deny the effect of ministry on so many people who God has clearly anointed who may not have seminary degrees. And I'm going to tell you something. It's never been clearer than to look at the first century church. Really. Actually, in my own life, I have come to conclude, believe it or not, that I believe the best training that a minister can have who's going to preach from the pulpit is a law degree. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you why. Because... In a law degree, you learn to consume voluminous amounts of information. You learn to read with a critical eye. You learn to write in a precise manner. And you learn to speak in a way in which a clearly articulated position is outlined with a beginning, middle, and an end. You don't get that from a lot of pulpits. Okay? And I would say that that is because law degree is effectively an essential element of being able to present the truth of God. But let's make this clear. God doesn't say you have to be a lawyer or a doctor or a minister to be anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. You understand that? And the first century church is the absolute proof of that fact the absolute proof of it. And so they were disgusted and angry that these uneducated men could preach with the authority that they preached. And so they imprisoned them. They put them in jail. You understand? Uh, And so they wanted to do everything that they could to derail the early church. But guess what? You cannot derail God. You cannot stop God. And so the next day, the very next day, Peter and John were warned not to speak again, not to speak in the name of Jesus. And if you look at the board in Acts chapter 4, verse 18, you see the following. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. They healed the lame man. Can you imagine? Evidence of the power of God, the miracles of God. They healed a lame man who had been lame for 40 years. And so they couldn't stop the miracle from taking place. And so what you can see this, and what I want to bring home to you today as you leave here, seven principles for handling persecution in the lives of the Christian and the church. Seven principles. First, be submissive to God. Not submissive to man, but submissive to God. Peter and John offered no resistance here to the Sanhedrin. When they were arrested, they didn't resist. Even when they were brought back in front of the Sanhedrin to plead their case, they didn't resist. Uh, And persecution, you see, gave them an opportunity that they never otherwise would have had to preach before the Sanhedrin. They were preaching because they were persecuted. And that's what happens when you submit to the will of God. It's as if Joseph said it uh, 1,500 years earlier uh, to his brothers who had sold them into slavery, and he looked at them and he said, what you meant for evil, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And I want to tell you that. I've seen that in my life over and over again. The very seeds of this particular church grew out of a situation just like that. And so we submit to the will of God. We bow to God's will In every possible way. Second, allow the Holy Spirit to empower and direct you. And let me repeat that. Allow the Holy Spirit to empower and direct you. You know, there was one essential prerequisite for Peter's powerful sermon. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do you think he spent the night in jail writing some notes? What am I going to say? How am I going to articulate? Anybody have any paper? Come on. They're in jail. They're locked down, but Jesus had told them this. Don't be concerned about the words. Don't worry about what happens when you're called up because the Holy Spirit will give you the very words. We walk in obedience. And I want to say this to you, that there will come a time in your life when you are persecuted, when you're going to be put on the spot where people are going to make accusations. They're going to deride maybe even your faith or your church. And I want to assure you that if you walk under the Spirit of God, God will give you the very words. And I have a personal testimony to say about this. In my last church, as I delivered the last Bible study that I would do on a Sunday morning, minutes before there would be an election, in which I was not supporting the candidate that was going to be put for election, the malefactors who had decided to do everything they could to destroy me Uh, and and to render my ministry null, came into that class. They sat in the front row as they tried to intimidate me, concerned that I would somehow publicly make some statement uh, about what was to take place, and yet I would never do that. Do you think I would take a public pulpit and use it to advance some position, I would never do that. So whatever I had done, I had spoken to people one-on-one privately, privately if they were interested. And yet here they came and sat in the very front row as they attempted to intimidate me. And all I can tell you is this. I have never been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit like I was that day. Not before or since. And I can tell you this, that as I spoke the words that day, it was as if God was pulling the words out of my mouth. Honestly, honestly. And I want to say something to you. It was as if I didn't have enough breath. I can't say it any other way. I didn't have enough breath. And all I can tell you was this, after it was all over, they came up to me the malefactor himself, and said to me, I have never heard a more powerful Bible study. Now that's what happens when you submit to the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to speak through you. It wasn't John Garippa. It was God delivering a message of power, that it was his church, his throne, and that these people needed to understand this. And so, we have to understand this. And I'm telling you that you also will do this. You'll feel this. This isn't because I'm, I'm a preacher. It's because God saw the opportunity and God filled me with the Holy Spirit at that time. And I want to tell you the same will happen to you. And so one of the other things we need to be aware of is that we need to be aggressive in seizing opportunities. Seizing opportunities. Yes, persecution is an opportunity. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is, quote, and he goes back and he quotes a passage from Psalm 118, written a thousand years before. The stone you builders rejected, which has become the the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Can you imagine having the courage and the power of the Holy Spirit to say this to the very malefactors that were responsible for executing Christ Jesus? And that's how we are to live. That's how God expects you to handle yourself when you receive persecution or suffering or you're in the face of derision. God wants you to stand like that. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. And you have been with Jesus as he has saved you and has given you the Holy Spirit sealing that. You also have been with Jesus. And so you also have the ability to do this. It doesn't matter that you didn't go to seminary, that you didn't study theology. God has equipped each and every one of you as you submit yourself and bow to the Holy Spirit. And so instead of being frightened into silence or submission to the, to the authorities or compromising, Peter displayed great courage and went immediately on the offensive. I gotta love Peter. He went on the offensive. You! You killed him, the very cornerstone who you rejected. And so what you see there is submission to the Holy Spirit and submission to God himself is not cowardice. The fact that we don't stand up for ourselves to defend ourselves is not cowardice because we stand in the shadow of God and God is our defender and God speaks out for us. And God will raise our defense. And I can tell you that I have every proof of that in every aspect of my life, that as I stayed silent, that God would raise me up. And so here he is, effectively convicting them of their own injustice and preaching the truth of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the very cornerstone, indicting them with their own passages. And so look what Ephesians 2, verse 19 says, and Paul outlines You two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let me understand and make something clear for you. You are the temple of God. You are the church of God. Yes, we would like to have a permanent building. But if God never opens the door for that, then that's the will of God then we will stay here for years if this is the will of God. We will submit to his will in every way because the church of God, the spirit of God is in your hearts. That's what the church is about. That's the essence of what it's about. You could see it here in this early church. Here they are. They don't have a building. They don't have a gathering place. All right, they're meeting in homes. They're meeting in homes. Uh, and yet his impassioned speech, his impassioned sermon, failed to soften the hardened hearts of the Sanhedrin. Yet certainly it was not without some effect because I know that Paul, who was a member of that, heard it and I believe that that had to percolate in his heart as he was reflecting later on what it meant for uneducated men to act like this. Next up is a principle for you to remember is this, be obedient to God at all costs. Be obedient to God at all costs. Yes, it does cost to be obedient to God. It's not easy to be quiet and to wait upon God. It's not easy to suffer from the attacks of the world and Satan himself. Uh, But here's the point. When you wait upon God, uh, the power of the risen Lord will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And here's the thing that I find so fascinating. The early believers, the first church, had to be commanded to shut up and not preach. You think that's the way it is in today's church? Don't preach to anybody. Oh, God forbid I speak about Jesus to one person, right? God forbid I speak about Jesus. Well, here's the lesson. God expects you to talk about the Lord to everybody, to your family, to your friends, to your country club, to everybody you know, to speak about Jesus Christ. That's the essence of this, and you see it in the first century church. And then, and then, be committed. Be committed to fellowship. Be committed to fellowship, meaning what? Be committed to the fellowship of the saints, Be committed to the gathering together. Be committed to the group of people that come together here every Sunday, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be committed to them. Uh, And look at Acts chapter four, verse 23, as you see Peter and John doing that very thing. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. The first thing they did was to go back to their own companions. They went back to their own people and they exulted over it. You understand, they were pleased with what God had done, how God had raised them up and empowered them. They went back to their own spiritual family. And that's the lesson here. We are together, we are connected. We love each other. We pray for each other. We affirm each other. And so when things are great, we come together. And when things are bad, we come together. And that's the lesson of this. And then the next lesson is we need to be grateful and thankful. Grateful and thankful for all God has done for us. And Peter and John returned not in a state of fear uh, and dejection, but in a state of exhilaration. Can you imagine? They derived comfort Uh, from the knowledge that the opposition had been foreseen a thousand years before in the Old Testament. God showed them it was coming. It was no secret. Look at Psalm chapter two, Psalm two, verse one. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed. Is there any surprise that the evil that you see today in the world, you'll look at Ukraine, and some of us can't understand how can this be. It's because evil dominates this world. You understand? Make no mistake about it. This is the veritable face of evil. We don't get a chance to see that as often as we should, but you're seeing it here, where evil is so powerful and so dominant that it will seek to crush men, women and children. It will seek to destroy hospitals and nurseries and churches because that's the nature of evil. Well, stand up, church. God has anointed you to stand up against that, to speak out against it uh, in a powerful way and to preach, yes, preach one at a time to your friends, to let them know how important it is that we stand for righteousness in such a powerful way. And then, what we need to be responsible of is to have greater, greater boldness. Be desirous of greater boldness. That's a prayer you need to make. Lord, help me to be bold. Help me to be courageous. Help me, Father, to stand up when you want me to stand up. Help me to speak up when you want me to speak up. Uh, And look at Acts chapter 4, verse 29, and you see that very prayer. And there the prayer is, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. I love the prayer. This isn't a prayer. Oh, God, help us. Stop them. Stop them. No, no. Look at the prayer. The prayer, let us speak with greater boldness, Father. Stretch out your hand to perform more wonderful signs so that this lost world can see your power. That's the kind of prayer God wants you to make embolden you, strengthen you, so that when you come to a time when you're with people who may deride your faith, may deride Christianity, that you can stand up and speak positively about it. And so here's the bottom line. After they came together in fellowship, and they were together in fellowship, they prayed. And the Bible tells us the place that they were meeting was shaken, shaken, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit does. God's answer to their prayer was not long coming. I'm sure they made that prayer, and probably a minute later, the room is filled with the power of God. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now notice, they're not speaking foreign languages now. Uh, And so what you see at the first coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost the, the gift of languages, foreign languages appeared. And then there will only be after this uh, three other evidences in the New Testament where foreign languages is spoken through the Holy Spirit. One of those is when the church of the Samaritans starts, and that's Acts chapter 8. Another is when the uh, Holy Spirit descends on the, on the house of Cornelius, and that is the beginning of the Gentile church, Acts chapter 10. And finally, when the disciples... The Old Testament disciples of John the Baptist come to faith really through Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 19. After that, the Holy Spirit descending in the New Testament is giving the power of speaking the word of God. Just as I spoke it that day when those malefactors were in front of me and the power of God descends on me and the Holy Spirit effectively takes the words that I have and use them the way God wanted. Listen, I can give you another testimony. I often listen to the radio programs uh, as they're put on the radio so that I, I can talk to people if they ask me about a message. And so I routinely listen. And I can tell you more often than not, I say to my wife, I have no recollection whatsoever saying some of the things that I said in that sermon. No recollection. Now, I wrote it. I prayed over it. I spoke it. How in fact can I say that I have no recollection? I have no recollection because what happens is that between the paper and my lips, the Holy Spirit descends and anoints me and the word of God is produced in the way he wanted it. It may not have been the way that I planned, but the bottom line, it's what God wants. And that's the very power of the Holy Spirit. And so the church had now faced its initial opposition and they were glorifying God. And so Jesus had prepared the church for suffering and persecution, but he knew that evil ultimately grows out of darkness and sin and that this world is full of it in any possible way. He also knew that he was the suffering servant spoken about in Isaiah 53, and he knew that was his ministry in every possible way. And so he sought to prepare them to tell them about the evil that would come. Prepare them. For persecution. And he did this at the beginning of his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. And he said, There, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, let me make it clear to you. I don't want you to think that at the moment that I was suffering and being persecuted, that I said, wow, this is great. This is great. I'm going to get a better reward in heaven. This is terrific. No, it doesn't work like that. Because when the persecution comes and the suffering comes, you're a human being. You're walking around in flesh. It hurts. You understand it hurts. Every word hurts. Every slander hurts. Every gossip hurts. But as you reflect and you step back and you pray about it, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And God really speaks to you and heals you and lifts you up and affirms you. And so then you understand, yes, Father, I understand. I'm walking with you. I should expect this. And so God does that. He speaks to your heart. And so look, here's what Jesus said. We are not to retaliate on the unbeliever. This is important. Even as you suffer, even as you're persecuted, you don't retaliate. You do not. You submit to the will of God. You live it all to God. You pray for those who persecute you. Can you imagine? You pray for them. And I have to say that I've done that in my own life. It isn't easy, but that's what God wants you to do, to pray, to pray for those who persecute them. Uh, And so Jesus taught us, really, he taught us the the vital lesson that joy, love, and forgiveness is the way we respond. This is a fundamental lesson for us today. And so if you want to study the life of a great man, as I said, one of the greatest men in the history of the Western civilization, a man who wrote more than half of the New Testament, almost two-thirds, it's Paul. And look at what he said about what he experienced. I've read, I've read this often, but it, it serves really to bring this message to a conclusion. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, and Paul said there, are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again. And again, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea as I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false Believers, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? There it is, folks. There's the resume of a man sold out out to Jesus Christ. It's not easy to be a Christian. It's not easy to walk with the Lord. Yes, there are going to be tough days. Yes, there's going to be persecution. Yes, there's going to be suffering. But those that have gone before us have proved victorious. Jesus walks with us. The Holy Spirit imbues you. He has empowered you and lifted you up. And you need to make a a positional statement today that you will not leave this place without being fully committed to defend God, to defend Jesus Christ, to defend the faith, despite the persecution, despite the suffering. This is how we must function as a church. Amen, church? Let's bow our heads. Lord, Father, I thank you so much for the lessons that you've given us. For this first century church, Father, as we're humbled, as we see these people bow before you in face of tremendous persecution and suffering. Lord, we're not worthy, really. We are not worthy to walk in their shoes. And yet, Father, you have called us. You've called us. Everyone here has been called, and you've you've filled us with the Holy Spirit and empowered us, Lord, to be able to serve you and to serve this church. Lord, bring us together as a church. Bring us together as a family and help us, Father, to make this the first day of the rest of our life as we commit to you to advance the will of God. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.